Podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. My name is John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minute 37, which begins with Ripley saying that she can't do that, meaning she can't open the hatch, and ends with Dallas asking, what the hell is that? And today, again, we are joined by Wes Anthony. Uh, thank you for coming back, Wes. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. And so in the last minute, we, uh, we ended with um, Ashes at the Door and uh, wanting very badly to open it. And Ripley's saying no. She, she's not going to open the door for her crewmates. Uh, this is a pretty big decision, huh? And there's that great close profile of Ash looking very robot-like, right? Straight at the door. Um, he's not, he's not in the middle of anything, you know, he's not, he's not pro or con. He's just waiting, watching everybody argue them, argue this whole point out. Yeah. It's just, again, very dispassionate, very emotionless. And that in given the emotional reactions of everybody else in the film, it's very odd. And in this particular cut, it's a straight, it's a very neat profile shot. Yeah. One, it's out of the, out of the blue, really. And it's the, to me, this is the most robotic one of all. It could skip right past you, and you might not even really think about it. But if you stop it and look at it, it's overt. Uh, what's what he's saying with this shot and with this cut, much like what we talked about in the last minute. I think this is one of those little um, hints at his android nature, for sure. Well, so much of this argument is covered in sort of traditional shot reverse shot. You know, you've got Ripley on one side, and then and then you've got the the two shot of of. Dallas um, and uh, and Lambert, and so when you go to that strange profile, it, it it's really arresting. It's also very dark. You'll notice that it's it's a really dark, shadowy shot. You can you can see his his face, you know, in in profile. So basically, on the, the he's facing left. So on the left side of the screen is probably like the brightest uh, part of it. So you can see his face, but then everything else, as this, as you you look towards. Towards the right, it just sort of gets much, much, much darker. And, yeah, I think that that shot is really just kind of swelling with portent, if you think about it, because in, in the previous shots of Ash in that area, uh, it's a lot brighter because he's in a room that's filled with uh, white walls and all that, and it's, it's generally very well lit. But then it, it, when it cuts back to him in this shot, dark as hell. Yeah, and that shot will actually be the shot that will cue his move. I mean, we'll stay in that shot when he actually reaches forward and, and unlocks the... The hatch, which is, which is interesting because it suddenly seems to get brighter. So I don't know whether somebody toned it down for just that one shot to make it ominous when they were timing the film, or, or what. Or it, but it's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting incongruity in terms of the lighting of the rest of the scene. I'm sure it was intended to to be darker than than the rest of uh, of that scene because again, I mean, it's if you think about it, it really is perhaps the most pivotal moment in the entire movie, considering what he's letting into the ship. You know, another thing that's interesting, too, is that the, is when they drop back to that wide shot where he's standing in front of the door, he's wearing what looks like a sort of traditional flight suit, which means it has that weird kind of lace thing up the back. But when you look at it, it looks sort of, un, you know, inhuman. It looks like there's it looks like it's, it makes me think of the the ribcage bones, you know, back on the back on the on the ship. You know, uh, there's something really unusual about about how he's dressed and how he, he he's fit into that suit. One more thing that makes him sort of uncanny, or as, as last week's guest pointed out, um, makes his gender somewhat ambiguous, you know? He's, he's, again, he's not behaving like Macho Man, you know? He's standing there coolly watching these proceedings happen. And Ripley, so Ripley's really sticking to her guns here, which is in 
uh, uh, contrast to earlier minutes when uh, she attempted to uh, go out after the crew when she realized that the uh, signal was not an S uh, SOS as much as a warning. She was very hesitant and, and basically allowed Ash to talk her out of that decision. But here she's not going to be talked out of anything. And she even makes the claim to Dallas that he would make the same decision if he were in her shoes. Do, do we believe that? Do you think that Dallas would be doing the same thing as her? Or do we think that Ripley might be the only one on the ship that would make this decision? I think, yeah, that Dallas would probably be a little more compassionate and maybe a little more hot-headed, and he would probably let Kane in. Um, whereas Ripley, she's really just sort of being by the book, and I don't fault her for that. I don't, of course, definitely she would want to go out and bring them back once she's, you know, analyzing this signal and it seems a little pinky. Uh, yeah, I, I would want to. That, that makes sense because at that point, nothing has happened to, to uh, her crewmates out there yet. But once the thing has happened and then they want to get back into the ship, well, again, it's just, just basically just playing it straight by the book. You can't, you can't let that person in. Uh, because you don't know what he's got on him. You don't know what he might be carrying into the ship. You don't know if everybody else is infected with some kind of weird thing. So I think she's playing it straight right down the line. And I don't, so I don't have any trouble reconciling her wanting to go out and bring them back initially and then not wanting to let them in later. Because that's it, both instances, her behavior makes sense to me. I don't know about you guys. Oh, yeah. And I think what else is interesting is, is when they finally, when Ash leans forward, you know, pushes the button, opens the hatch, and then they cut back to Ripley's reaction. You can see this frustration in her face. It's, even though it's a medium shot, they didn't, didn't go to the close-up. And then before you can even let her vent her frustration, there's this immediate hard cut to, to the helmet and the thing, you know, attached to the helmet. So it's a really shrewd move to keep that tension escalated so that, you know, eventually they're going to, we know that this is going to come to a head and they're going to fight over this, but not yet. Well, there was something I was going to bring up. That, Wes, we've had this somewhat of a theme. We've been discussing the archetypes, character archetypes set up by Star Trek in regards to how this crew is, is portrayed. And uh, being that the Star Trek would have been a very prevalent place to find your science fiction tropes in 1979. Um, Ash is the science officer here, as Spock was on the Enterprise. But Ripley's really behaving more like the Spock here. She's making a cold, logical, calculated decision. Do you think there may be Ridley Scott, the writers, they're may, maybe taking those established Star Trek archetypes that we might have been comfortable with and then suddenly twisting them on us a little bit? It could be that. Uh, I don't even know if they're really thinking about Star Trek at all when they were when they were writing this. Although, if they were thinking about it, that my guess is they definitely would have been thinking with an eye towards subverting all of that Star Trek hierarchy. It, it does make sense if you're trying to do something that's going to be completely different from what we have seen in a in a science fiction context. You want to turn over everything and and mess with everybody's heads as much as you can. Right, and that seems to be what they've been slowly getting at the, the entire time. And I am probably guilty of reading way too much Star Trek into this, but I do think it's fun to play around with the idea, knowing that so many of the viewers, at least, that's where they they got their information about uh, both science fiction and about the dynamic of a crew on a spaceship. So um, we cut right into we're in the infirmary. We got a tight close up on his on his helmet. And some stuff inside the helmet, 
that's shrouding what we only see is a small bit of the face hugger at this point. So that's kind of an interesting place to cut to. We're not we're not starting with an establishing shot here. We're not establishing this as the infirmary at all. We're just going right into the middle of this uh, this kind of disgusting image. And as the uh, camera does a sort of a slow creeping zoom in, they cut out of that to the reaction shots to to uh, Dallas saying, "My God," and Ash close up, sort of looking uh, to see what it is. We're, we're you know we're finally going to get to see. And then we get the big reveal, which is, you know, the helmet being pulled away to release this, uh, to reveal this face hugger. Um, and we see that snake-like tail tighten around Kane's throat. And unless I'm mistaken, this is all done with without any underscoring. So there's no traditional horror movie sting or anything like that. Uh, isn't that right, Wes? Well, there was some written for the scene, but... Uh... Ridley Scott and Terry Rollings, the editor, decided that they didn't want it in there, so they left it out. So there's there is music under this most of this sequence, um, and they just they just removed it. And then what little music there there is towards the end of the sequence, they replaced completely what Goldsmith had written for the film, uh, which we'll get to when we get to that minute, and they just replaced it with something from another film. Terry Rollings, the editor, uh, his methodology was to to lay in a lot of uh, what they call temp music while he was editing and the music that he because they knew that they were going to have Jerry Goldsmith writing the music he put in a lot of temp music by Jerry Goldsmith stuff that he had written for other films and some of it Ridley Scott decided that he liked better than what Goldsmith had written for Alien and so they bought some of that music and they put it in the film but yeah there is supposed to be music uh, in this in this scene, and there's there's several instances like that where in, throughout the film where there is supposed to be music because he wrote it for for some scenes, and they just decided uh, against it. In fact, you know, if if I may, uh, I'd like to play a little bit for you right now, uh, not from this scene, but it's from another scene. And this is, uh, if you will recall, uh, at the moment when uh, when Ash is trying to to kill Ripley. And then Parker basically just you know, smacks him in the back of the head with a fire extinguisher. And then remember when he starts spinning out? There's no music for that scene. But there was music that was written for it. And I'm pretty sure it goes like this. So you can hear, you know, Goldsmith, uh, he definitely knows how to set a mood. <laughs> and uh, uh, that, yeah, that music was meant to accompany that scene where Ash starts spitting out and, and, and milk-like substance is uh, flying out of him, uh, culminating with uh, Parker basically knocking his head off. Um, but that music didn't end up in the film. And they just decided not to go with it at all. And I, I think it might have helped. I mean, yeah, it's obviously the, the, the scene is very effective uh, on its own because it's just such a, a weird thing. You don't expect to see it. You're not really expecting to, to find out that Ash is a goddamn robot as uh, Parker puts it. But so, so yeah, when it happens, it's, it's quite a jolt, but throughout this film, Goldsmith had been writing music all along that uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, 
the filmmakers just decided that they they just didn't need it. There's recently been a record uh, a release, right, of, of a lot of the stuff that we've never heard before. Isn't that correct? Yeah, there is a, a, a two-disc soundtrack that was uh, uh, released by Intrada. It's a very good uh, uh, record label that puts out soundtracks specifically. And they put out, yeah, it was a two-CD soundtrack that they put out in 2007, actually. And you can buy it on Amazon, I believe. And it, it contains the full score that Goldsmith wrote. It contains all the, the changed uh, cues that he rewrote that ended up in the film. And then, of course, there's also the uh, the original soundtrack album that was released in 1979 that I also happen to have uh, on vinyl. I, I still have it. Me too. I have mine too. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's it's got everything. And if you're a fan of it, but also, you know, if you have the Blu-ray, you can hear all this uh, on a separate audio track. They put it in a separate audio track with all of Jerry Goldsmith's original cues in place. Uh, so, you know, if you if you have a mind towards uh, checking that out, you can do it. Well, does anybody have anything else for this minute? I don't. West? Uh, no, no. I think we got it. All right. So that'll do it for minute number 37. Uh, tune in tomorrow for minute number 38. Uh, you can go to alienminute.com or iTunes or the Stitcher app to uh, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, you can also follow us at Alien Minute Pod on Twitter. And we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 38.